0: Critics call it newspaper eschatology. I should define eschatology for us. It's that branch of theology that is interested in last things. For our purposes today, it's the study of unfulfilled Bible prophecy. Newspaper eschatology is a derogatory label to belittle Christians who believe that you can see trends and events in our world that corroborate the 500 or so remaining end times prophecies in the Bible. I'll give you an example. Prominent in the news of late has been the airstrike ordered by President Trump against Syria as a warning that the United States will no longer tolerate Syrian President Assad's use of chemical weapons against his own people. Long before that airstrike, students of prophecy were pointing to Syria because of some things two of God's Old Testament prophets said about the future of its capital city, Damascus. Jeremiah said this, he said, Damascus has grown feeble, she turns to flee, and fear has seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her like a woman in labor. Why is the city not deserted, the city of joy? Therefore her young men shall fall in her streets, and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. And then the prophet Isaiah says this, he says, the burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, And it will be a ruinous heap. Now, Damascus has the reputation for being the oldest continuously occupied city in the world. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah are predicting its total and final destruction. The current chaos in Syria is exactly what you'd expect from reading the Bible. Wait a minute, the critics object. Damascus has been conquered in the past. Those prophecies by Isaiah and Jeremiah have already been fulfilled they would argue. And I'll grant them that Damascus has been previously conquered. It was conquered by the Assyrians in 732 BC, then by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, then by Alexander the Great. In the 7th century, Damascus was the victim of a Muslim siege. Later, the Turco-Mongol armies of Timur conquered it around the turn of the 15th century. We would counter their argument by stating that Damascus has never been totally ruined and left uninhabited, as Isaiah and Jeremiah are predicting. But even apart from that, there's something more at play here than whether or not it's ever been conquered. What the critics won't tell you is that scholars whose field is eschatology understand that a single Bible prophecy often represents two similar events that can be separated by time. It's called dual fulfillment or dual prophecy, and it's the observation that some prophecies in the Bible have both a near fulfillment and and a far fulfillment an example would be a prophecy that god made to david uh, king david concerning his son reigning on his throne the prophecy had elements of fulfillment in the near future in the person of david's son solomon who became king after him but several important elements of the prophecy were not fulfilled by solomon And it was therefore also looking past Solomon to a far fulfillment of it when Jesus, the greater son of David, will sit on David's throne. Thought you were coming for me, man. You were that close to being wiped out. I'll tell you, there's a lot of concealed carry people in here. That was a close one, man. Weapons down. Come on. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not. Sorry, I've been waiting to do that. But uh, anyway, so there's a there's a prophecy that David's son will sit on the throne. It was fulfilled by Solomon, but there's elements of it that have not yet been fulfilled that will be fulfilled when Jesus comes in his second coming to rule and reign. And so the critics of our approach to prophecy are themselves being disingenuous in their criticism, even if the Isaiah and Jeremiah prophecies had a near fulfillment, they also could have a far fulfillment, and they know this. We might, therefore, really be witnessing the far fulfillment of ancient prophecy, the final destruction of Damascus. And that's the kind of thing that we want to do. We're we're not saying Damascus is going to fall. We're not saying this is it. It's been fulfilled. We're saying that when you read the Bible, these guys hundreds of years ago talked about problems in Syria and Damascus, serious military problems. You would expect that to be happening in the world if those prophecies are going to come true. And you see that happen. And we may be witnessing that fulfillment. Damascus is just one small part of the larger stage that's being set. There's a famous prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that lists a coalition of nations who will attack Israel in the last days. Those nations are currently aligned with each other, just as the Bible predicted. They are Russia, Iran, Turkey, Libya, and the Sudan. Further, Ezekiel mentions that the main attack from those nations will come from the north, meaning the armies will advance through Syria. But let's cut to the chase. The critics ignore what might be called the mother of all end times prophecies that Israel would become a nation again in the last days and become the central focus of world events. What are the chances that a nation that had ceased to exist as a country would suddenly reappear back on the world stage and be resurrected after more than 2,000 years? Nothing like that has ever happened. And this is why the fulfillment of all these prophecies is incredibly amazing. Here are just a few of the hundreds of biblical predictions which have been fulfilled as Israel became an independent nation after centuries. These are fantastic. First, Jesus predicted Israel's total destruction. Matthew 24, he said, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. This was fulfilled just as Jesus predicted. In 70 AD, the Roman legions led by Titus sacked and burned Jerusalem. They weren't supposed to tear the temple apart, but they did. The story goes that once they lit the city on fire, all the gold in Herod's temple started to melt and get in between the cracks of the stones. And they tore down the place stone by stone to get at the gold. It's one of the oddities of history that the temple project was not completed until 64 A.D. When Jesus made his prediction, they weren't even done building the temple. They finished in 64 A.D. just in time for it to be destroyed six years later as a result of the Jewish rebellion. And another reason why it was unusual that it would be destroyed, it was a Roman project. Herod is the one who started the building of the temple, not the Jews, and they certainly didn't want it torn down. Critics point to the wailing wall as evidence Jesus prophesied falsely when he said not one stone shall be left here upon another. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever wondered that? You always see pictures of the wailing wall where people put their prayer requests and the Orthodox Jews are bowing and praying. People visit. It's this massive wall with these giant stones. And then Jesus said not one stone would be left. So what's the deal? Well, that wall wasn't part of the temple. It was a retaining wall that was built by Herod the Great. It had nothing to do with the temple structure whatsoever. In fact, one scholar wrote, strictly speaking, the temple proper is not a matter of archaeological consideration since only one stone from it and parts of another can be positively identified. That magnificent structure can only be identified now by parts of one stone. And so exactly what Jesus said would happen, happened. Number two, the land would be laid waste and Jews scattered throughout the world and persecuted. Leviticus chapter 26. I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. In 1867, Mark Twain wrote about the land at the time saying, Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes The spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. Meanwhile, the scattering of the Jews to nearly every nation on earth has a name. It's called the Diaspora. It's a dispersion. The history of the Diaspora is very definitely one where the sword followed them everywhere they settled as Jews were cruelly persecuted in every country of the world. Number three, Jerusalem's temple mount would be destroyed and plowed under. This is pretty specific. Uh, Micah 3.12 says, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Sixty or so years after the destruction of the temple, Rome was planning to build a temple to Jupiter on the temple mount. In 131 A.D., the governor of Judea, Tineas Rufus, performed a foundation ceremony which involved plowing over the temple just as Micah foresaw. It led to what historians called the bar Revolt. The Hebrew language, number four, would be resurrected. Zephaniah 3.9, for then I will restore to the people a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Hebrew was spoken by the Jewish people from the 2nd millennium B.C. until the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. From that 6th century forward until the close of the Middle Ages, many Jews spoke Aramaic, and many ancient Jewish texts, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, were written in Aramaic. Hebrew passed out of knowledge. But then in the late 1800s, an Orthodox Jew who took the name Eleazar ben Yehuda almost single-handedly, despite opposition from his own people, resurrected the Hebrew tongue. Hebrew is now spoken by the majority of Israel's citizens. Linguished are astonished at its revival. As with so many other things, it is absolutely unprecedented that a language which was essentially dead has been resurrected uh, in such a way. Number five, Israel would be reborn in one day. Isaiah 66, verse 8. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Israel, a country that had not existed as a separate nation for nearly 2,000 years, was declared a new sovereign state by an act of the United Nations on May 14, 1948. The nation was literally born in a single day Exactly the way Isaiah predicted it would be centuries earlier. There would be a worldwide return of Jews to Israel. Ezekiel 20, 34. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with fury poured out. Isaiah again. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. The Jews had been scattered to virtually every country in the world. But over the years, many felt compelled to return to their homeland, especially as they experienced persecution. So it started slowly, but bit by bit, they began to come from the east and the west and the north and the south, returning to Israel. They came from the ends of the earth, just as the Lord said he would bring them. No other people has ever gone into exile and survived for thousands of years to come back and reestablish their national homeland. The return of the Jews from exile to the land of Israel is nothing short of a miracle. Number seven, the Jews would return to Jerusalem. Zechariah 8, 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east, from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Although Israel became a nation in 1948, the Jews did not have control over Jerusalem until 1967 when they recaptured the city during the six day war. All of these prophecies very specific and they come true exactly as God says they will. Number eight, Israel would bloom and fill the world with fruit. This is from the obscure minor prophet Amos, who said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, the mountain shall drip with sweet wine and the hill shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. Israel was a desolate wasteland full of malarial swamps and deserts right up until the beginning of the last century. When the Jews began to return to the area in large numbers, they began to transform the land. Israel has now advanced in their farming and irrigation techniques, taking this once barren land and turning it back into extremely productive farmland. Israel produces 95% of its own food requirements. They export tons of food to the rest of the world. They're recognized as a world leader in agriculture, research, and development. If you use drip irrigation, you have Israel to thank because they invented it in order to make their desert bloom. Number nine, trees will grow again in Israel. Isaiah 41, 19 and 20. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the olive tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. During the past century, more than 200 million trees have been planted in Israel and those forests are flourishing. Now, I read that again this morning, said that can't be true. You know how people exaggerate. 200 million. So I looked it up, I Googled it, and it's false. 240 million trees have been planted in Israel, according to the latest source. Do you understand what I'm saying? God said through Isaiah that there would be forests in Israel where there weren't any forests. And today you can count 240 million trees in the land of Israel. One tree that isn't flourishing is the one planted in 2013 by then-President Obama as a gift to Israel. I feel obligated to tell you this, since we're on the subject of trees. I mean, this is my only motivation. The Times of Israel and Israeli news website Ynet reported that on the president's departure, the magnolia tree was unceremoniously dug up by the ag ministry and taken away to be tested for pests. According to the Times of Israel, quote, plants cannot be brought in from abroad without undergoing a check by the ministry. And so... Apparently, the president brought an unchecked tree, planted it, uh, and they had to uproot it. There's no talk of if it got replanted. I'm guessing not. There are also predictions that this reborn last day's Israel would be a problem for all the nations of the world. She is called a cup of trembling. I'd say that's an apt descriptor of modern Israel's political situation. The rebirth of Israel as a nation is one of the most incredible supernatural displays of God's power ever. Nothing like it has happened before that a nation would be resurrected after being out of existence for so long. It is a modern prophetic miracle that is still unfolding. People who say that if if there were miracles today, they would believe they're ignoring the evidence the modern state of Israel is nothing short of a miracle. It's not just a historical anomaly, it is a miracle. In February of 1979, Pam and I sat in a nearly empty movie theater in San Bernardino and we watched The Late Great Planet Earth. It was based on the future prophecies of the Book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It laid down the daily news right next to prophecy to show that what God had predicted in the Bible was coming true right before our very eyes. It was compelling. It was only a few days later that Pam had rededicated her life to the Lord and that I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. The study of prophecy from a literal, futurist position has never been so relevant as it is right now. Everywhere I go, people are referring to things like the mark of the beast, And Armageddon. Here are a few recent headlines in major newspapers. We're doomed. Why is Hollywood obsessed with the apocalypse? Strange obsession with the end of the world. Be honest, the apocalypse seems kind of exciting in a way. I don't know about that one. Zombies, power outages, global pandemics. Why TV is embracing the apocalypse? An article I read stated it like this. It said, in the last few years on screens, big and small, we've seen driverless cars careening into crowds, airplanes falling from the sky, the Hollywood Hills aflame, true believers being sucked into the heavens. The rapture is upon us more so than ever through movies, both faith based, secular and somewhere in between. I find it amazing that just when non-believers are the most interested in eschatology, many churches are discouraging its emphasis. You know those critics I mentioned who coined the label newspaper eschatology? They are Christians. They are Christian apologists who want us to quit talking about prophecy and especially about the rapture because they say it's not relevant to the culture. And yet the culture is filled with talk about Armageddon, the apocalypse, and the rapture. They get it all wrong, naturally. They, they build on the theme from the Bible and they get it wrong. But people are fascinated with this. Maybe you're fascinated with this today. Maybe you have some wonder in the back of your head, that, that little chip now that's on your uh, credit card. You think, how close is this to the mark of the beast? Where are we headed with all of this? Shortages, wars, rumors of wars. Are we in the end times that the Bible talks about? The answer to that is yes. People are interested and fascinated and more than a little scared. But that's because they think of the apocalypse as the complete and final destruction of the world. We know that the apocalypse is the saving of the world as Jesus Christ is unveiled to return and rule it. We can give people the hope that Jesus is coming. And by coming, I mean first he's coming to resurrect and rapture the church. The Bible ends on a high note. I, we eventually get to Revelation 22. That was my introduction. And this is my conclusion. But anyway, nothing in between. Revelation twenty-two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Sorry if I spoiled the ending of the Bible for those of you who haven't read it yet, but <laughs> I just, I should have given you a spoiler alert. Oh, I'm in Genesis reading about who begat who and I could just cut to the chase. So it all ends good. When is Jesus coming? Quickly. It doesn't mean soon. It means suddenly. I still say Jesus is coming soon, but that is incorrect. Jesus is coming Suddenly. Soon indicates a little while. When do you think you're going to be able to get on soaring over California? Well, soon. I've already been in line 20 minutes. It'll be another 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 minutes. But soon, you know, I'll be on there. We use soon like that all the time. Soon can be a pretty long period of time. But he's coming quickly. It means suddenly, and it could happen at any moment. John understood this to refer to the rapture because he adds, Even so come, Lord Jesus. John knew that Jesus' coming is preceded by at least a seven-year tribulation. When you read the book of the Revelation, there's a seven-year tribulation at the end of which Jesus returns. And so John, who wrote the Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew that there would be at least seven years from the time the tribulation began until the second coming of Jesus. So no way he was talking about... Uh, the jesus second coming here knowing the many events that must occur prior to his return to rule the earth when he said jesus come quickly he meant you could come right now in the rapture and get this going and then the tribulation will begin so that's what he was talking about the imminent pre-tribulation pre-millennial return of jesus was important to john it affected how he lived he wrote this in his own epistle First John three, two and three, he said, beloved, talking to us as Christians, says now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we're going to be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope we will be raptured imminently inspires us to keep ourselves pure, contributing to the Lord, transforming us more and more into his Image. Tom Ice is a theologian who talks a lot about the rapture and occasionally he'll start one of his uh, talks by saying, what problem do you have that wouldn't be solved by the rapture? None. That's what. And that's what John is talking about. He says, I'm going to keep myself pure. I'm going to walk with the Lord. I'm going to live the Christian life being transformed into his image from glory to glory until he comes because he could come at any moment. The hope we will be raptured imminently inspires us. Do you have a theme for this year? Instead of resolutions, people are choosing a word or a phrase to be their theme for the year. My theme every year until I'm in heaven from now on is going to be even so come Lord Jesus, because it covers everything. Anything I can think of that I'm going through or want to do or whatever is covered by even so Lord come right now. Revelation twenty two twenty one. 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You present the gospel in a context of grace. It's because you love them with the love of Jesus Christ that you explain to non-believers what what is happening and what is going to happen. Prophecy is a great proof of the love of God because it shows that he gives men ample warning to repent and be saved. You ever think about that? Prophecy is is about the love of God because he tells us ahead of time what's going to happen so that we can plan for it. Prior to the airstrike against Syria, the United States warned Russian and Syrian forces. They let them know we're about to drop the mother of all bombs on you. You might want to move. It was merciful. It was wonderful in that sense. Prior to the Great Tribulation and all during it, God issues warnings When we study through the Revelation, we call the series the grace of wrath because we see in the wrath of God being poured out his final powerful efforts to reach sinners to save them. Nothing that happens in the book of the Revelation isn't from the point of view of God saying, get saved now before it's too late. My long suffering is just about over. I have to deal with sin once and for all, and you're going to be on one side of it or the other. And so prophecy is a great reminder of the grace of God. When we talk about these events that are going to happen, it's not relishing that God is going to destroy the world. It's letting people know that he's going to pour out his wrath in order to save men and women. It's a last-ditch effort. Back up in Revelation 22, 17. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, let him who thirsts Come. Whoever desires, let them take of the water of life freely. So it ends with an invitation. The Spirit says, come. That's the Holy Spirit whose ministry is to reveal and glorify Jesus Christ. Specifically, John in his gospel says he is to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. And so the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And what that means is that by his ministry... He frees our will so that we are able to see ourselves the way God sees us as sinners, as those that are far from God who have fallen short of the glory of God. You acknowledge that you cannot by any amount of good works, therefore, save yourself. You must be declared right by God. And so he convicts us of righteousness. And that's what happens when you receive Jesus as your Savior. You're declared righteous. And so you're a sinner. Don't take that personally. We're all sinners. Even if you're a Christian, you're still a sinner. But before you're saved, you're a sinner and you don't know it. But then the Holy Spirit works on your heart and it's revealed to you. Not just that you do a few bad things or you're not as good as you could be or you want to be better or you start going to church one day, but that you're a sinner separated from God, and that if you were to die right then, you'd be separated eternally. The Holy Spirit shows you that, and he shows you that nothing that you can do can get you right with God. There's a righteousness that only God has, and he must give that to you. And when Jesus died on the cross, he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your sin on myself. I'm going to give you my righteousness, and in that exchange, you are saved. And he does it in the context of what he calls the judgment to come. Everybody has the understanding that there will be a final judgment. That this thing that we call life and earth is temporal, that it's temporary, that it's headed for an ending and rebuilding. And so within that time, that's what the Holy Spirit is about, convicting people of sin so that God can declare them righteous so that they can avoid the judgment to come. You can either stand before God accepted in Jesus Christ or you stand on your own in your insufficient righteousness destined for hell for having rejected God's free offer of salvation. By the way, scholars point out that this is the only prayer by the Holy Spirit that is recorded in the Bible. To me, it says a lot that his only prayer is for Jesus to come suddenly. The Holy Spirit is pre-trib in his eschatology. And so we're in good company when it comes to what we believe. Then it says the bride says come. The church on earth is the bride of Jesus. The church collectively ought to long for his coming just as a bride awaiting the coming of her bridegroom to marry her. We should, I guess one way of putting it is we should have an excitement about talking about Jesus. Not as an obligation, but as an excitement. Hey, if you're engaged to somebody and you're embarrassed to tell anybody, you've got a problem. I don't want to be the one to tell you this, but, you know, if, if that's your situation, I hope I'm not busting you out. But gals, if, if your fiance doesn't like to introduce you, get somebody else. And so that's the idea. You know, we, we feel like, oh, I have to share. Oh, I should be doing evangelism. But well, the idea is just be in love with Jesus and you will want to share him because it's, it, he, you love him so much. The the bride says come to Jesus. We we want you to come, Jesus. And and we're excited about what's going to happen when you do. Him who hears says come. The individual in the church on earth, you and I ought to in our personal lives, live in an expectancy of the imminent pre-tribulational, pre-millennial return of Jesus. Whatever that means to you. That the Lord could come right now. And how does that affect what I want to be doing right now? Then it says... Let him who thirsts come. I think this refers to non-believers who are parched for a drink of the free living water offered to all by Jesus. But you must come and take. You must receive him by faith. It's a decision that you have to make. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. We're in love with Jesus. We sing to Jesus. We study Jesus. We we talk to Jesus. Jesus. And God talks to us through his word. So we're, you know, we're in that flow. And we're excited to share him with you in many different ways. Jacob gave a, uh, what we call an apologetic or an argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what this day is all about. It's a celebration that Jesus is risen from the dead. He's risen from the dead to never die again. And it says that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Meaning that after him, there will be many other resurrections. They will be those who follow him, who trust him, who uh, give their lives to him. I stand here today absolutely confident that when I die, I'll be absent from my body and present with the Lord. And that if I should die before the rapture takes place, I will have a resurrection body when the Lord comes. And uh, of course, my personal hope is that the rapture would happen before I die, like right now. And then... Uh, I will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and have a glorious body. And that's, I can say that because Jesus is alive in a resurrection body. I'm going to have a body like his, and that's what this day is all about. And then there's going to be people who don't get involved in that. They, they keep putting off this decision to receive Christ. They keep thinking that it doesn't apply to them or they'll get with it some other time, but... The Holy Spirit is here in this place, if you're not a Christian, to convict you of sin. I remember the very moment that I was convicted of sin for the first time. Now, my whole life I knew I was a sinner and I kind of liked it. It was great being a sinner. I was from a religious tradition where you could be a sinner and still go to heaven. I had it all. I, I just sinned. You don't want to sin too badly because there's always some things you push up against. You think, ah, you know, murder, I, that, you know. Some of this stuff I might not be able to get through. But, hey, I'll just spend two or three hundred thousand years in purgatory if I have to. And then after that, I'm going to heaven. I had an absolute you know, confidence in what people had told me that I could do whatever I wanted to and go to heaven. Until I saw that movie and the Holy Spirit said, hey, guess what? Jesus is alive and he's doing stuff and you're going to be affected by it. And then one day my wife talked to me about something and I looked at her and I thought wicked thoughts. And something inside of me said, do you understand who you are? Do you see how you think about life? Do you see the wickedness in your own heart? And I thought hell was going to open up right then underneath me. And suck me down and it would be too late for me. And I I understood that I I was convicted of sin. that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts you of sin. And just when you think there's no hope for you, he shows you Jesus Christ on the cross in his perfect righteousness... Dying in your place for your sins so that you can be saved. So that when God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus Christ, and he says, enter in to heaven.